Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Uh, how much anyone remembers from the previous week. And uh, this morning, as I was uh, walking around saying hi to some people, a friend came up and she said, oh, I'm glad I ran into you. I have something for you. She said, I got you a sleep mask because of my issues that I talked about last week of, not, of wanting it pitch black dark at night. So um, then I ran into somebody else who was like, oh, yeah, I was going to order you one. So I feel like I'm going to be getting a lot of sleep masks. But then I thought... This is a way to complete my Christmas list. <laughs> that might be more self-focused, but um, anyway, I won't do that. Um, but uh, anyway, so as we started last week, we started talking about this. Our, our kind of theme as we're walking into Christmas, the Christmas season is this whole idea of, uh, of, of the light that 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 Jesus is in the world. And, and last week we looked at Isaiah and the prophecy where he said that, that, that the people who walked in darkness had seen a great light. This week I was, I was thinking through what, what, what we're gonna talk, be talking about in the scripture that we're gonna be looking at this week. And um, <clears throat> I read some articles and did some research on, on something called light and dark adaptation. And light and dark adaptation is basically what happens inside of your, your, your eyes and your, your vision when you go from you know, a dark place to a light place or a light place to a dark place. And, and, and I'm sure we've all experienced that where in the summer, you know, you're outside and it's sunny and then you come into a room, which isn't dark, but it's just darker than it was. And so you, you have to adjust and it takes some time to adapt to that. Um, same thing where you go from like, if you went, you know, go see a movie uh, during the day, you know, when it's nice out and sunny and you come out of the movie theater and it just, everything is so hard to see and you have to adjust to that. So light and dark adaptation is the process that happens when you're going from a dark environment to a light environment and, and then vice versa. And as I was reading these, these articles that talk about the science behind what happens in our, in our eyes and inside of our head and all those kinds of things when you go through those things, it was interesting because I came upon just a simple statement about how, how to, more, to better adapt when you're going from like dark to light. And I don't think it was the point of the article. I'm not sure it was what the author of the article wanted me to walk away with, but it's what I came away with because it hit me and struck me as something really significant, especially for what we're going to be talking about today. And this is what I read. It said, both adaptations are best controlled by changing behavior and possibly by changing route. Kind of Interesting that what they say is I can better adapt going from dark to light if I change behavior. They were talking about things like maybe, you know, wear sunglasses and gradually get used to the light or changing route, going a route that it doesn't go from the, con the stark contrast of, of dark to, to absolute light. And so it's interesting because, because they said the way to handle this 
is actually by changing you rather than changing the light. And so just kind of remember that because we're going to circle back to, to that idea as we walk through. As I said last week, we, we looked at Isaiah and, and he made that statement in his prophecy almost 2,800 years ago. Um, People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And he prophesied that Jesus, the light of the world, would come to rescue humankind from its sinfulness. And this really is what Christmas is all about. It's the fact that, that Jesus brought light. He, he exposed the darkness of the human condition, the sin in the human condition, and he exposed it, but brought an opportunity to be saved from sin, to receive salvation, to be, be forgiven and, and, and over the next few weeks, we're going to actually look at how we have opportunities to respond to the light of Jesus, and we're going to kind of look at this, how it's demonstrated in the lives of some characters who are in and around the Christmas story. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about one of those people, but I want to start by laying a foundation for how he approached the light by looking at a, a passage that... Um, whether or not you've been in the church ever, if you've ever watched a sporting event, you're probably familiar with John chapter 3.16. So um, turn to John chapter 3 in your Bibles, and I want to look at uh, John 3.16 to 21. And uh, to kind of lay the foundation of, of, of kind of giving a context and understanding this person's reaction to the light. So I'm going to start reading in, in verse 16. John, the apostle, writes in his gospel, he writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so there's some things that, that John explains, and really this, this passage obviously is all about God's love. And, and so John lays a foundation of God's motivation, but also man's behavior and man's desire. And so he establishes right away that, that God loved the world. God loved the world, those that make up the world, the people that he created, God loves those people. And that he loved them so much that God actually put action to his love. Because you see, it's easy to to, to talk love, but really love becomes real when it's acted upon. And so the action of God's love was God giving or sending Jesus ultimately to die for the sin of humanity. And, And really what's contained in God's love is that God sent his son, not a lamb, not a bull, not a, not a goat, and so it was costly that God sacrificed his one and only son. And so it was at great cost to God the Father to love us the way he does. And the way we experience God's love is by believing on the son, not working for the son. It's not a, it's not a, 
thing that we, we, we accomplish or we work for, or we deserve, or we, we, we get because we're owed it, because we, we've done some transaction. The idea is that simply believing on the Son, it's not working for. In fact, he even says at the end of this passage, he says that, that, that part of uh, becoming like Jesus is to not only recognize ourselves, but other people see that the good in us comes from God. Not, it does not originate from ourselves. And so see, this is the ultimate depth of love because it was deeply costly for God, infinitely beneficial to us, and absolutely free. See, that, that, that's how God displays his love to us, is that, is that it was deeply costly for God, infinitely beneficial to us, and absolutely free. And really, if, if you were to summarize Christmas... I think that's a great summarizing statement, that Christmas, the birth of Christ, and what Jesus did cost God everything, benefited us unbelievably, and is free and is available to every person who would respond to that. And, and, so, and so really, that's what, that's what the Apostle John sets up here, is, is that love that God has. Um, look at verse 19. Verse 19 where, where he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the things of the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. You see, John makes this statement. He says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And, and here's the thing that we need to understand, and here's the thing that, that we have to recognize. Jesus doesn't condemn us. You can't condemn a people who are already condemned. Like, that doesn't work that way. Because people who don't know Christ or haven't interacted with Jesus or haven't been maybe directly confronted with Jesus, those people are condemned without even ever interacting with Jesus. Because that is, that is the nature. Because we are separated from God and we are sinful, you can't condemn someone who's already condemned. What, what does that do? It does nothing. It's almost laughable. And so Jesus doesn't condemn us. He gives us an opportunity. He exposes what's there, and he gives us an opportunity for salvation. And so what he says there is that everyone is in darkness. Darkness is sin, and sin is condemnation. And so we are all already condemned. And that's why John says that, that those who believe on the Son are saved and they're no longer condemned, but those who don't believe in the Son, he says, are condemned already. Our condemnation has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with the fact that we are sinful. And, and so he says, everyone who, who, who loves darkness will continue to live in darkness and be condemned. And and he describes here what a darkened heart looks like. He, he walks through this and he says that, that people love darkness because their works are evil, because they want their own agenda, because they want their own thing, and that they are all about themselves. And so people are in darkness because their works are evil, they do wicked things, and they don't want those things exposed. It's much easier to do things that are wrong when no one sees them, <laughs> when no one can confront you on them, when no one catches you doing them. And so darkness keeps us from exposure. And so that's why John says that men loved darkness. 
And he even goes to the point that they hate the light. Why? Because the light exposes everything so they do everything they can to avoid the light. That is what a darkened heart is. It is to keep itself from being exposed. But then he says the, the, the other side to that in verse 21, he says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And, and that's not easy because being exposed is painful but when we're exposed by the light of Christ, it is also full of hope and encouragement. And so, and so here's the foundation that John lays. He says, look, because men are wicked, because people are evil, because people have a sin nature, light is difficult. And it is far more comfortable in our sin to remain in the dark and unexposed. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2. A few Gospels back from John where you are and turn to Matthew chapter 2. I want to talk about a guy who was pretty significant, had a significant position in the Christmas story, and this is King Herod. And I'm going to read the first four verses of Matthew chapter 2 to kind of set the, the context. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to you, I have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And, 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 so, and so here, here the setting is, is this, these, these, these wise men from the east who, who do all of these kind of studies and things like that. They, 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 get, they study the sky and they, they see this star that is unusual, different than any other star that they've ever seen or studied and, and, and so they follow it and they, they come to this place of recognizing that there's going to be this king born in Israel. And so they go to the current king to see if, if he knows something about it because you would think that he would be interested. And so they go and talk to him and Herod is concerned. And uh, it's interesting because Herod... Quite an interesting guy. This is Herod the Great. There was a number of Herods who held authority throughout Israel. This is Herod the Great, not the Herod who was, who was king when Jesus was crucified. That's a few Herods down the road from the Herod the Great. But Herod the Great was made king of Israel by the Roman Senate. And he was deeply loyal to whomever in Rome had the power at that moment. So there was a number of power changes from Antony and, and to all different kind of people in Rome. And Herod the Great was, was a great politician where he would, he would show his loyalty to whoever had the power and would be, be very helpful to them and be uh, very respectful to them because Herod really liked to have his own thing. And so he would be really loyal to those in Rome. The interesting thing was he wasn't a full-blooded Jew, but he wanted that legitimacy as he sat on the throne of Israel. 
And so it was kind of tough because people, the Jews didn't necessarily accept him as the true king, yet he wanted to. And so he would do some different things to try and feel more legitimate. So for example, uh, Herod, even though he wasn't required by the law because he wasn't full, fully Jewish, he chose not to eat pork. And, and he basically tried to present himself and project himself as the protector of Judaism. So he did things that were beneficial for the synagogue and for he, he, he did things that, that would try to win favor with the, the, the priests and, and, and those kinds of things. Yet, yet, realistically, Herod was a pretty successful ruler and he was an incredibly cruel tyrant. He uh, was, was married, uh, from what I can gather, a total of about 10 times, and he murdered his favorite wife. I don't think he understands what favorite means. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really in favor of killing any wives, but you'd probably go for your least favorite, but I don't, I don't think like Herod, apparently. But he killed his favorite wife. He also killed several of his sons uh, because... Herod lived in, in, a, in a pretty, in a way that he wanted to protect everything that he had and he would dispose of anyone who he thought, even if there was no evidence, but who he thought might present a problem or interfere with his rule or simply his desires. And so Herod, Herod disposed of a lot of people, his own family members. In fact, it's interesting, there became a pretty common saying in Israel uh, the Jews and even some of the Romans who, who knew Herod, um, the saying went like this, um, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because <laughs> the pigs were safe. <laughs> Sons were not. And so, like, that's the character of this guy, Herod, who is ruling Israel at the time of the birth of Christ, the guy that these wise men go and ask, hey, there's a king being born, and of course that would upset Herod. Because Herod is, doesn't want anyone, any possibility of anyone at any point in time threatening his, his rule. And he kind of had a, a God complex. And so it didn't matter if he was younger or older, that, that he was going to protect what was his, and it didn't matter what he did to do that. And so it's interesting, because Herod did everything within his power to extinguish being exposed by the light. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. So, so you've got the wise men, they go and eventually they find Jesus and, and they give Jesus the gifts that they brought to him and, and they're told in a dream by, by God that they shouldn't go back to Herod and report where they found Jesus because Herod was not a good person and so they go a different route and, and in verse 16 we catch up and it says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so here Herod decides the way to protect himself and keep the light from exposing his deeds, his action, his heart. He decides to kill all of the male children aged two and under in Bethlehem, which... Bethlehem was a, a, a small community. 
Even today, there's maybe 22,000 people who live in Bethlehem. So that probably works out, even in that day, probably as, as few as 20 to as much as maybe 40 babies fitting that category. And so Herod, on a whim, decided to kill 20 to 40 little baby boys, which isn't really that much of a stretch from he's killing his favorite wife to killing his own sons. What would stop him from killing a bunch of babies that he has no connection with or relationship with? So, I mean, it's a pretty ugly picture of, of, of Herod. And he did all this simply to protect himself from something that he couldn't even confirm was a threat. And so Herod would be a great example of someone who is solidly in darkness. And, and again, remember I said that he, he presented himself as a kind of a protector of Judaism and he wanted legitimacy. And so if he was exposed, that would take away everything he wants to be known for. And the reality is people knew how bad he was, but no one could say anything because, well, they wouldn't be breathing anymore. And so Herod did everything he could to extinguish the light because of what the light of Jesus would expose how it would expose him. Remember what I talked about light adaptation and, and the statement that jumped out to me, a change in behavior or change in route? Here's what's interesting about, about Herod. When he was confronted by the light, not only did he not change his route, but he went even further down the road. And not only did he not change his behavior, but he actually leaned into his own wicked behavior and, and, and killed even more innocent people. See, when, when, we, when we're confronted with the light, we either adapt to it or we avoid it or try to extinguish it. See, the consequences of Jesus as the light of the world and his nature. Because again, in John, we understand that Jesus doesn't condemn, he exposes what is already there. Jesus is truth and he brings truth. He, he exposes the truth. And so, you see, the consequence of light, Jesus' light reveals the truth about all things. Jesus' light reveals the truth about God, who God is. Jesus revealed who God was, and that was difficult for some religious people to take back in the day because they didn't want to know the truth about God. They wanted their own rendition of who God was. Jesus' light reveals the truth about ourselves, and that's one thing that Herod couldn't afford to have because, because he didn't want the truth about himself known, and, and it's so hard for us because oftentimes we struggle because we don't want the truth about ourselves known. Because there's things going on in us that we don't want to recognize. That's why when, when someone comes to correct us, typically there's a process of us owning up to that correction, isn't there? Rarely when someone corrects us do we respond with saying, oh man, that is, I'm so glad you're in my life and that you were willing to fix me. <laughs> It doesn't go like that. I mean, you know, at best, there's a time lag where eventually you come around and say, hey, sorry I reacted to you that way. You're right. <laughs> but that's the best case scenario, practically. Jesus' light reveals the truth about salvation, that we cannot fix ourselves. 
That it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of our sins. Jesus' light reveals the truth about what is good and what is beautiful. You see, it also reveals the truth about what is evil and ugly. See, we don't have author's rights to determine what is good and what is evil. Jesus determines that. It's not for us to to define or redefine or, or figure out. Jesus' truth exposes what is good and what is evil. Jesus' light reveals the truth about how we ought to live. And, and that was, I would guess, super threatening for Herod because Herod, how he was living and how Jesus reveals the truth about how we ought to live, there's a huge disconnect there. And there's a disconnect for us when Jesus says, this is how I want you to live. We have our own agendas and our own preferences and our own desires which don't always coincide with what Jesus calls us to. The light of Jesus reveals the truth about all right thinking, all right feeling, and all right doing. Those are all defined and measured by Jesus. That's how it works. Jesus' light reveals all truth. And so Herod could not afford to be exposed by the light You see, when it comes to light adaptation, it's not about changing the light, it's about changing me, isn't it? Even with our eyes, when we, when we work through that stuff, the, the suggestion is to change my behavior or change my route. See, and that's what Jesus calls us to do when he exposes us. He says, I, I want to change your direction. You see, the road that you're on has an intended destination that you will arrive at no matter what if you stay on that road. If I was to leave church today and go out and and, and get onto I-5 and go south, eventually, if I stay on I-5, where would I end up? Mexico. That's where I will end up. Is there any way that if I stay on I-5 and go south that I won't end up in Mexico? It's impossible because that's where that route goes. The only way to change it is if I get on a different road. And you see, when Jesus' light enters our lives, we are called to evaluate the road that we're on. And when we see Jesus, we're called to change roads because the road that we are on has an intended destination. When we see the light of Jesus, when Jesus enters our life, we our behavior radically changes. But it's not just behavioral change, it's behavioral change that comes from a a, a transformation from inside. And Jesus changes who we are, and our behavior follows. You see, the light of Jesus requires us to surrender our lives and then adapt to him by changing our behavior and changing our route. That's what Jesus calls us to do. You see, we have an opportunity, I believe, that God gives us and and something that we can kind of confront this morning. We have an opportunity to change that behavior, change that route. Because you see, Herod was given an opportunity that he could either continue in the darkness that he had or allow himself to be exposed by the light of Christ and be radically changed. 
You see, so often what we tend to do, there's those who reject Jesus, which is, which is very clear. But then there's those of us who pursue Jesus, but we pursue Jesus in a way that we want to adjust his light to what we're comfortable with. I don't think a week goes by that I don't hear from some context or another that if Christianity is to be relevant today, it's going to have to change some of its beliefs. And when you hear that statement, this is what I want you to hear. Our culture is calling us to adapt the light of Christ to what we want. That's what it's saying. It's saying there's no change in route that Jesus calls us to. There's no change in behavior. It's that we need to actually put a dimmer switch on Jesus and bring him a little lower. That's what that statement means. Because, see, the light of Jesus reveals all truth. We can't make something that's true false or something that's false true. And, and so, really, we have an opportunity. How do we respond to the light? We know that Herod responded to the light by trying to extinguish it. What's the other side of it? Where John says in John 3.21, where he says, those who, who, who recognize truth that they go to the light and they allow Jesus to expose them and they grow through that. There's three things that we do to adapt to the light. First one is this, confession. And it's simply confession is to agree with God about my sin in the community with others through the local church. See, so often we, we like to think of confession as private and something that no one else has to be involved in. But, but biblically speaking, what God reveals to us in our word is that confession has a corporate piece to it. That we are called to confess our sins to God, but we are also called to confess those sins to one another. Why? Because it is voicing agreement that God says this is wrong. See, it's so easy for me to, to sin and then confess that to God and say, God, please forgive me for what I did because I know it was wrong, but then I go out and it's easy then to live and do that again as if I didn't even agree that it was wrong. When I take that in a corporate way into the community that God has placed around me, then there is far greater accountability. Confession is both private, but it is also corporate. So the first thing is confession. The second thing is prayer. Spending time in, in personal and corporate prayer for strength, that I would pursue Jesus over sin, that I would be able to withstand temptation, both that comes from within my heart and from outside sources, and, and prayer to, to multiply my gratitude of thankfulness towards God's goodness. You see, confession isn't enough. I've got to be, be communing and communicating and listening to what Jesus says so I can confess and recognize, yes, this is wrong, but if I don't go to God to ask him to strengthen me and to protect me and, and I go to him in gratitude because of who he is and what he's done, then I'm not going anywhere because the reality is I can agree that it's wrong, but without God's work in and through me, I can't stop sinning. So I need God to change that. And our connection to God is that prayer. 
The third one is, is repentance. See, repentance is actually quite different than confession. Confession is a declaration. Confession is saying, yes, this is wrong. Repentance is the other side of that. Repentance is surrendering to God and putting to death our sinful desires. In other words, it is, it is in essence a resolution. Thanks, uh, New Year's is coming up soon and we make resolutions. Repentance is a resolution to obey God practiced in the community of the church and in the world. Repentance is, is, is a resolution to obey God and practice that obedience in the community of the church and the world, that people see this. See, see, I can say, yeah, I agree with God that this is sin, but repentance is actually obeying God. I can agree that something's true and not actually obey, right? But see, repentance is obeying and then practicing that obedience in the community. And so how do I, how do you and I, how can we adapt to the light of Christ? By confession, prayer, and repentance. And uh, somebody caught me between, between services and they said, I was trying to figure out how to remember that. And she said, it hit me, it's just CPR. <laughs> confession, prayer, repentance. And it will change your heart. And I was like, that's brilliant. I thought of that. <laughs> but it's easy to remember. See, that's, that's our responsibility. That's how we're called to respond to the light. See, my most painful exposure leads to my most fruitful faith if I'm willing to turn on my comfort and adjust myself to the light. See, it's not comfortable to be exposed. And that painful exposure, because Jesus will reveal a lot of stuff that I don't want to admit about myself. But my response to that will actually, in that pain, will actually result in an incredible hope and a faith that God will do incredible things with. If I'm willing to, to, to step back and allow myself to be adapted to the light, as opposed to try to control the light or extinguish the light or, or diminish the light. See, that's my responsibility. My mission then, as I go in a cycle of, of confession and prayer and repentance, and then it's kind of like shampoo. Then repeat over and over and over again. This, you never get done confessing, praying, and repenting. But my mission then is while I become more adjusted to the light, becoming more like Jesus, I assist others. How do I assist others? It's that same love that God showed us in John chapter 3. And we've talked about this before because the, the, the characteristics of God's love is that God's love comes out in a patient, kind, and honest way. That God's love is patient with us, it is kind with us, and honest with us. And that is the kind of love we love others with. That's how we assist others to adjust to the light. Patiently because we realize that being exposed is painful. And we don't want to be exposed. And, and, and kind, because it's hard. And God showed his kindness to us. We show kindness to others. And honest, because even though it's hard to be exposed and, and hear the truth about ourselves, we have to confront the truth about ourselves. 
and we have to confront it honestly. That's what God calls us to do. I want to invite the worship team and the, the choir to come back, and, and, and they're going to lead us in, in some more worship. But here's what I want you to understand. Your mission, our mission that Jesus calls us on is, is costly because it's painful to be exposed to the light. But it's just like what God did, that what God did in giving Jesus was costly for him. It was incredible for us, and it was totally free. We reflect that to those around us. And our mission then is at great cost to us, love people so that it benefits them, so that they can, can adjust to the light. And we do it not because they deserve it or because we like them, but because God calls us to. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the, the, the way that you guide and direct us. God, I thank you that, that we can know absolutely for sure where we stand. God, this morning that, that there, there are those who have chosen not to respond to your light, maybe some who've rejected and some who just aren't sure. God, I pray that you would help them to, to step in and make that decision to surrender their lives to you. And God, that you would surround them with people who will love them the way that they have been loved, patiently, kindly, and honestly. And Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have, have lived and walked with you, but, but God, we've done it in a way that we've tried to adjust your light to who we are. So Father, I pray that we would confess and and seek you in prayer and repent of that, that we would change our, our direction and we would change our behavior so that we would adjust to you and the light of Jesus and the truth that it reveals. God, thank you for, for giving us warnings and examples. God, that we wouldn't be like Herod, but God, we would choose to change our route and change our behavior so that we would walk freely with you, that we would be surrendered to you, and that we would receive the hope and encouragement that we can get from being children of God. In Jesus' name, amen.